Uh, I'm Tommy Joe Martins, and this is my top five. What's poppin' race fans? This is your host, Aaron Beard 93 I'd like to welcome you back to the Motorsports Beat Podcast. Now today, in the first official edition of the podcast, we have a top five episode with none other than Tommy Joe Martins, an Xfinity Series driver who also spent some time in the Camping World Truck Series. Uh, I've known TJM for a while. I talked to him for a story a few years back, and he's somebody who I felt comfortable going to on the driver's side to get feedback on this podcast idea. And he said he was on board with it. I thought I'd record one with him, and I'm happy to say it went really well. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. Quick note, this was recorded last fall, so when you hear me talking about SEC football, I know that's why it's a little late on that. But And with that said, let's just get right on to it. Here is the top. What's up, y'all? It's me, Aaron Bearden93, and I'd like to welcome you back to the Motorsports Beat. Now, today's topic du jour is another episode of the Top 5, where we take the stars behind the cars and spotlight the five races that have been most important to their lives. Now, today's guest, he's a racer that I understand to be from a non-racing family, an old Miss Rebel turned NASCAR stalwart, a team owner, occasional blogger and podcaster, and someone with a journalism degree that I actually don't have. <laughs> you can catch him driving the number 44 Chevrolet whenever the NASCAR Xfinity Series takes to the track, and you can find him on Instagram and Twitter at Tommy Joe Martins. And with all that said, I'd now like to welcome Tommy Joe Martins to the top five. How are you doing today, Tommy? Doing really good. Good talk to you, Aaron. Yeah, man. Been a while. Uh, now, this is a quick intro. You know, I always do a little bit of research on my guys coming in. Uh, one thing I wanted to know right off the bat, this is just a nerdy, curious thing. I have a couple friends that are like Bobby Joe or, Bill, or I have one that was Amanda Sue. What is with the Tommy Joe Martin saying? Have you ever just gone by Tommy with anybody or is it something that's just kind of always been part of your name growing up? You know, it's like 50-50 <laughs> with my friend group. Um, some of them call me Tommy and some of them call me Tommy Joe. It's something that stuck with me my whole life. Uh, it was kind of Tommy Joe when I went to kindergarten and have been Tommy Joe ever since. And, <laughs> you know, I haven't met very many Tommy Joes in my life. I think I've probably run across like one ever. So uh, it's unique and I think it's a pretty good name for a race car driver. Yeah, it would work better than Aaron Bearden. And my middle names are Michael Douglas, so there's just no way it fits. So we're just going to keep him out of it. I'll just stick with Aaron Bearden. Uh, another thing for you, you know, SEC football's coming up. Your old Miss Rebels are there. I want to know, Kiffin's in town. Are you all aboard the lane train? Are you a little nervous? How are we feeling going into this football season? He was literally the person that I was uh, tweeting about hiring before we hired anybody. So I'm very excited. Uh, my friends at LB's Meat Market in uh, Oxford, Mississippi, where Ole Miss is, they have been uh, they've been putting out the Lane Train special <laughs> ever since he was even rumored uh, to be hired. So the whole town's behind it. Um, I'm glad SEC football is continuing. I know this is kind of a weird time in America right now. There's so many different thoughts, but um, we've been able to do this stuff in NASCAR. We've been able to do it safely. Uh, I know that the SEC is going to do the best job they can. And the thing to remember there is the players are wanting to play. And uh, just like with us in the NASCAR world, we're, we're wanting to race. And so it's up to the organizations to try to figure out how we can do that safely. And uh, I think the SEC is going to figure it out. And I hope, I hope that there's always conflicts with me with racing. I, I hardly ever get to go to any games. We're always racing uh, that late in the year. It's one of the reasons I want NASCAR to shorten the schedule. It's very selfish. I want to be able to go to some Rebel games occasionally. Uh, but they're playing a an SEC schedule, and I've already looked it over several times. And it's just hard to know what to expect. But I know that Lance can do a good job. Any nerves about Mike Leach over there in Mississippi State across the way? He might bring the air raid out there to you. Yeah, I think it's going to be awesome. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, the state of Mississippi turned into one of the best, uh, most fun, friendly rivalries in the country now because I think uh, both Leach and uh, Lane have a lot, of, uh, a lot of respect for each other. That was something that was lacking in the previous iteration of 
yeah. the coaching down there at Mississippi State. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So at the time we're doing this interview, you know, we're getting close to the Xfinity Series playoffs. You guys have got a doubleheader coming up at Richmond. This has been kind of a crazy – I mean, I don't have to tell you this, but it's been a crazy year for you guys. Um, just what's it been like trying to work through this and running the Martins Motorsports team and getting through racing during a pandemic? Uh, you know, the COVID stuff really hasn't bothered us much. Um, that was just kind of par for the course. Um, NASCAR set out the, the rules and the regulations for that. And we have been more than happy to oblige uh, to be able to keep racing for our, our sponsors and all the fans out there and, and for us, too, as an organization. I mean, if we weren't racing, we would be out of business. It's that simple. Uh, the majority of our money is made up by the prize money. I've been very vocal about that. A lot of the small teams would be very vocal about that. Uh, so we're not out racing. We're not getting any money. And uh, a business, when it's not making any money, isn't going to be a business for very long. So uh, it was something that we were happy to work through. And uh, really, the only concerns that we've had have been uh, racing related as an organization where we need to get better on the racetrack and, and kind of find out what are the expectations for us as a race team moving forward. 10-4, 10-4. I know you talk about a business without money. I've been writing about y'all for a few years now, so I know a thing or two about it. <laughs> no, no, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. Anyways, as you know, I've kind of pitched to you already. The whole point of this is to spotlight your top five, you know, the races that have meant the most to you. And so with that said, I'm going to leave the floor open to you, Tommy. What is the first race that comes to mind for you? Uh, the first race that comes to mind for me, uh, when I think about the top five races of my career, it would probably be uh, Iowa in 2017 um, with BJ McLeod Motorsports. That was my best career finish. Uh, I was at a track that I really kind of took a liking to and will always have a really special place in my heart. Uh, and getting to race there and uh, just the way the thing came together with BJ, I really was kind of sitting on the sidelines and, and uh, it was my third race with the team. And basically that's all I had really gotten put together with BJ was uh, he basically just needed somebody to fill in. And it was a three race thing that started at Pocono. And I think I finished third first. And then we went to Michigan and I finished like 27th, 26th. And the team at the time was like 37th in the standings or something like that. I mean, it was not a desirable place uh, to be. And uh, going to Iowa, you would have never thought in a million years uh, you, you get a finish like that. And we caught a caution at the right time, strategy where we were going to be going along uh, with fuel. And we had kind of pitted a little off sequence. Got us in a good position. We were able to hold on for a, a near top 10 finish, and, and it was just really unexpected. And I just remember uh, just how happy everybody was. Uh, myself, my family, uh, BJ, the team. And it was really the first time in NASCAR that I felt like I had kind of validated myself as a, as a pro driver uh, at that level. So first thing that comes to mind for me with that is BJ himself is such an, a unique figure, I feel like, in the NASCAR world. He has this almost like this old school vibe to him a little bit. He's kind of – I know he's had the really cool face mask and stuff during this time, but just in general, he's such a unique person in the motorsports world. So what, what was it like to kind of get to talk with him and get that started, and what's BJ like to work with? BJ is a great guy to work for, and he's a driver, so he understands a lot of what you're doing. Um and he's an active driver, right? He's not a former driver. He's literally out in the car on track with you that weekend. Uh, so you can bounce a lot of stuff off of him and he understands it. And uh, the way he saw it was he needed somebody that understood the value of not tearing up equipment, uh, which I had been racing from my family team leading up to that. But he also saw something in me that, that maybe I didn't see yet. Um, and he felt like the fact that I was driving for my family really kind of held me back. Like I was, I was too worried about it. And he just wanted me to go out and drive a car and, and just do the best job I could. And again, I, like, I don't really know what he saw. There wasn't a whole lot there in 2016 uh, that you would point to as like potential. Um, but he believed in it. And also, I don't think he really had many options. 
<laughs> I mean, they, they, uh, they weren't exactly having people knocking down the door um, for that 78 ride in, in 2017. So um, that was kind of the start of a long relationship that I had with BJ McLeod where I ran for them for two and a half, three years and really kind of established myself as a, as a regular uh, Xfinity series driver, um, which I've been able to build relationships through that and, and um, led to other opportunities. That was, I guess, my last thing on this. I mean, you talk about it helped you obviously a lot with keeping the program rolling with BJ and showing them what you could do. But for yourself, you know, you come in, I mean, you've been, you finished, I think, 28th the race before that. I don't know what you thought was feasible going into that, but what does it do for you climbing out of that car and the sensation for you? Like, what does it do for you when you get a strong run like that? Yeah, I still remember uh, seeing my dad and my girlfriend at the time uh, meet me on pit road and just a sense of shock uh, that everybody was in <laughs> and uh, lined up for the last restart. I think I lined up eighth and it was like maybe an eight lap run, eight or nine lap run or something like that. And in the car lining up there, it was really, I mean, I had had moments like that in the truck series. In 2016, we had chances at a top 10 finish, and it didn't work out. Um, and there, when we lined up there, it was just – it happened so suddenly where it was like, well, you know, we're having a good day. We're inside the top 20. Wow, this is going to be a great finish for us. And it's all of a sudden you got a shot at – you don't know what the heck's going to happen next. Um, it was really neat. And the guys that I was racing with there for that position, it's not like it was just – scrub like I look back at that that race and it's not like you know there were only 11 cars on the lead lap and I finished 11 <laughs> like there were 18 or 19 cars and we beat some guys like JJ Yaley in a tri-star car and um, a couple JD Motorsports cars that I knew were pretty good and I look at that and I'm like like you know I must have been doing a pretty good driving job that night and so that's where you take pride in it uh, when you feel like you got everything out of it I mean that's when that's when you really are happy um if I had a 10th place car and I finished 12th, I'm not going to be happy. Right. Um, but the expectation there was I was in a 25th place car and I finished 11th. And so you get out of that car and you're pretty happy. Makes sense to me. I feel like that one's going to be a hard one to top for you, but let's, uh, let's see what other races you've got on your list here, Tommy, what is coming in second for you here? I would say number two would probably be Arca uh, at Daytona in 2010. And that was a big race because it was Danica Patrick's first ever stock car race. And I took my family team with a car that we had bought for, I believe we bought it for $10,000. Baker <laughs> 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 Curb Racing. And uh, that was a former Xfinity Series team. And we went down there and did the Daytona test with a motor that we bought. And we probably put the whole deal together for 30 grand and went down there and finished eighth uh, against some of the names that are still around in our sport now, but the guys and, and girls uh, that turned into uh, big names. And it was my first time ever at a speedway. I remember we got practice rained out. Practice was rained out. We did not have a guaranteed oh, number. Man. And I knew there were over 50 cars that were showing up for the race. So we weren't sure if we were going to qualify for the race. Uh, made it in, barely. Uh, I think we were going to start like 30th. And um, I had no drafting practice ever up to that point. Uh, I'm going to fire it off at Daytona in the Arca race, which as somebody that's watched motorsports my entire life, I just knew that I was going to be in a crash. It's like that's Arca at Daytona in the first 10 laps every time. Uh, and so knowing that going into it and then there was a crash and then avoiding that and that sense of relief. And, you know, I, I think about that, like the way, um, I hear football players talking about the first hit in a football game, how that kind of wakes them up. And it's like, now the nerves are gone. And that's how I felt. And we were able to just kind of race our race and put ourselves in the lead pack with a few laps to go as people were trying to make some moves. And I think I finished, uh, it was a Ricky Carmichael and Danica and me like banging doors uh, on the way to the line there. So kind of a, kind of a cool moment. And again, just more than we could have ever expected uh, going down there and um, 
we'd come off a year racing late models where kind of up and down. And honestly, at the time, it felt like this might be the last thing I ever get to race. Like it was kind of like, well, we're going to do this. And, you know, if something comes from it, great. If not, go back to school and got a top 10. And uh, really nothing ever came from it that year. But it was still just this kind of amazing feeling. First time ever racing at Daytona and, and getting a top 10 on a, probably the most watched ARCA race of all time. Uh, <laughs> just kind of a neat thing. Oh, for sure. So we've got an IndyCar winner and female phenom and Danica. We've got a Supercross star and Ricky Carmichael. Then here comes Tommy in the $30,000 car right next to him in the top 10. That's, that's pretty wild, man. Yeah, it made, the, it made the cover of ESPN homepage, and it was me and Danica side by side. Uh, Danica had a moment where she spun and I was the car that was dodging it. That made it in Life magazine. And I had people like sending me this stuff. And I think that was kind of the first time that I ever realized like, okay, you know, this, this stuff maybe has more reach than I'm like giving it credit for. Um, and how many people were reaching out to me about that. So it was a really neat moment. Sure. For sure. Now I'm curious, obviously it's cool when people like that are in the race and you know that it's going to have more eyes on it. But when you're late in the race running with them, is there any like fear of like, Oh God, I do not want to be the guy that wrecks Danica on like the white flag left of this arcer. Is there any like trepidation for that? No, I was really looking at her like, good, like I need to work with her. She's got the fastest car. Like, it was just so obviously the fastest car. And so I just kind of made it clear to my spotter at the time, like wherever she goes, I'll just go. I'll go with her. Um, and it worked out where we got a we had a pretty good finish. For sure, for sure. So obviously you didn't run anymore that year. I think you ran one in twenty eleven. Was that did that run kind of stick with you for a while? Was that like the thing that kind of kept in the back of your mind when you were slowly kind of building back toward NASCAR and the ARCA series? Or Yeah, I ran ARCA again the next year, and we finished 14th with the same car. Um, so it was neat. I mean, it, you know, to go down there and run twice uh, and finish the race both times and top 15 both times and top 10 one of the years, that was kind of cool. And then we sold the car. <laughs> we, we made money. <laughs> it's rare you actually make money in racing. Made money on that car, so that was kind of cool. That is cool. I guess the last thing I'll touch on with that, what's it like that first time you pull on track at Daytona? I mean, I feel like that's – if you think stock car racing, that it's still kind of the place we all dream about. So what was that experience like? It was an amazing feeling. And that's a feeling that I want more drivers to be able to um, – I feel like, and this is going to be a little bit of an aside, Aaron. <laughs> I feel like we are making the top three series very exclusive in NASCAR um, with what we're doing with charters and uh, condensing teams and the cost to be able to come out here and do this. And I think one of the big things that NASCAR needs to look at, especially in our series and in the truck series, is ways for – uh, it was like what we did going down there and running ARCA at Daytona with a $30,000 car. Um, there needs to be some sort of level to that to be able to do that. I want, I want more people to be able to have a chance to be NASCAR drivers. And I think if we can lower the cost of competition, make it make sense, uh, put in ways for those teams to, to show up and, and race, uh, even if it's like an open slots, however it is. Uh, but overall, just lowering the barrier of competition to where a team owner is more influenced by getting a really good driver behind the wheel so than a funded driver, uh, where maybe a team can can profit by itself rather than relying on outside income. Something I've talked about a lot, and I think it would afford uh, more people that we know are deserving of being in these cars an opportunity to be in them uh, on a stage like that. Interesting. I don't want to go too far off the tangent here, but is there like, is there anything you think of or anything that comes to mind when it comes to finding ways to implement that? Because I feel like that's always been the struggle is we all kind of agree that there needs to be something done, but it's so hard to come to a consensus on what the right things to do are. Yeah. Tires and engines. I mean, that's kind of the two biggest things. Um, entry fees. I mean, that would save you some. They talk about pit crew reductions. I'm not really for that. I mean, I like pit crews, 
I think that's an important part of what we do. You can maybe talk me into just saying, well, you know, pit crews, that's a part of the cup series, especially since they're going to be going to a single lug, right? And so it'd be weird if you had pit crews that were pitting two different types of lug nuts on the same weekend. It'd just be kind of weird. I mean, I'm not saying they can't do it. These guys are awesome. Um, but that would save money if you went to some sort of like a version where maybe you chop the race into a third, right? And you go, each one of the stages is where you can change tires and you treat it almost like a late model race, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that would save money. Uh, and that combined with the big issue here, which is just paying the teams more money. Um, we've spoken about that. Uh, whereas, you know, right now the, the team revenue cut is only 25% of the television money that comes in. Uh, mm-hmm. Tracks get 65%, NASCAR gets 10%. That obviously needs to change. Uh, the teams need to get more money. Uh, I look at the truck series. They should get paid more. Um, but all teams should get paid more. I mean, that's our series and the, and the cup series as well. Um, this is a partnership, right, between the teams and NASCAR, which is going to eventually turn into they own the tracks, right? So that, that split there is really no different than an ownership and player split in most sports you know whereas essentially we're the owners and the players (laughs) and and they own the stadiums that we have to play in so a little bit different but really the same and i think that it's going to have to get worked out to closer to a 50 50 version of that money split um, which is going to come up that's coming up in a few years Uh, the new television rights contract is going to be coming up in in 2024 i think and that'll be a major point of contention Probably with the cup teams, they're the ones that are going to have to lead that discussion, but the effects will probably be felt by us in the truck series as well. 10-4, I'd almost hate to go back to what I was doing now, but <laughs> I still want to spotlight you some more, Tommy Joe. So we are up to number three out of five. What race you have for me now? Uh, Talladega, 2014. Uh, I was driving for my family's team. We had a Dodge car. It was a slow hunk of junk <laughs> we were out there trying to run um full time in the xfinity series and we were struggling really bad we had a terrible year we had missed several races uh, not qualified turnover uh inside our organization uh, if you can call it that what much of an organization uh, you had a rookie driver didn't know anything rookie crew chief didn't know anything uh, and, uh, and team owners in myself and my dad that didn't know anything. Um, that's not a great recipe for success uh, at the top levels of motorsport. So we had, had such a tough year. We went to Talladega and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. We just thought, man, we could win the race here. It's like, no, we can't. Like, our car is slow. <laughs> but we knew we had a chance at a, at a good run, and um, we should have just been riding around taking care of it. Uh, but instead, we kind of stuck our nose up in there all day, and we're in the lead pack all day and dodged multiple crashes and uh, restarted inside the top 10 on a green-white checker and wound up finishing 14th. So it's really more of a context of, of the emotions of that day and how bad we had struggled up to that point. Um, 14th felt like a win for us at the time. Uh, it just was such a huge moment. Uh, for us and and getting that finish um, in a way kind of validated what we had done up to that point, even though it had been a complete mess. Mm -hmm. So just, it's hard for me to even picture what it's like to try to come into the series, especially as a rookie driver with the team. Just how hard was that stretch leading up to Talladega? Because I think that was what, April that year, maybe May. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, incredibly difficult. We had taken two cars to Bristol and there were 42 cars that showed up and 40 made the race and we were the two that went home. Uh, and I had wrecked a car in practice was one of the reasons that we went home. So we had just really been put through it that year. And, and Talladega was like, I don't know, like an equalizer. And we had, we had qualifying that year. That was when we had open qualifying uh, or group qualifying at the speedways, which was legitimately the dumbest shit that we've ever done ever. 
uh, in all of NASCAR. Uh, whoever's idea that was uh, up there, just congratulations. Uh, where can we send the bill for all of that nonsense? Um, and incredibly dangerous, just whatever. Uh, whatever. Taking part in that was one of the most frustrating things I've ever done. And we were a go or go home car. And we luckily made it in. Uh, I just remember the stress of that and being relieved. And uh, also that weekend, we were first in practice and final practice, which means absolutely nothing at Talladega, uh, <laughs> but meant something to us after the year that we had had. It was still kind of cool to see uh, the 76. That was the number we ran. It was cool to see the 76 uh, sitting up there P1 on the board. So it was just kind of this magical weekend. Um, and that's really the closest race to home for me, uh, I grew up in Mississippi and, and right around the Memphis, Tennessee area, and that's only about three hours away. So Talladega is kind of a home – that's kind of my home track, you would say. Memphis Motorsports Park really is my home track, but um, I would say probably Nashville or – or uh, because I race at the fairgrounds so much in late models. But uh, Talladega was such a special place, and, and to get a finish like that, it was just really neat. So I don't really remember a whole lot of how that race played out. Was that one of the ones that had a lot of attrition or was it something that you guys were... won the race, I believe. Okay. Um, there were some big wrecks. Uh, we got red flagged twice. <laughs> it was, <laughs> Sounds like Dago. It was a mess. <laughs> yeah, it was a mess of a race and, you know, so much adrenaline and, and, oh my gosh, you know, like I could win, like lining up green, white checkered eighth place. Like you don't, that is one of those places where, uh, yeah, maybe I could win. I mean, who knows? The front six could wreck going down the backstretch. Like, you don't know. And so just all of that tension building up and then finishing where we finished. Uh, obviously not what we wanted. I wanted to finish better than that, better than 14th, but that just like such a relief after the year we had had. I'm sure. I know you guys ran, I think, a handful more races after that. How How long did that – result kind of carry you guys and keep you going how long did that one stick with you we basically lasted until about indianapolis which was kind of the summer um but look we were hemorrhaging uh over the course of that time so it was a tough year a learning year and apparently we're pretty stupid because we came back and did it again in 20 2016 <laughs> <laughs> uh, well at least you had the good result to show for it was that like was that kind of like the one reassuring thing? It's like if the right circumstances play out, I know I can still do this. Did that kind of help you with that when you guys were even thinking about coming back a couple of years later? I think really it served as a warning to us that we need to reassess how we did it, which we did in the truck series. Um, Martin's Motorsports lasted for two years in the truck series, and uh, I can say this very frankly um, – the reason we did is, you know, it was not because of the money and we were getting paid. Uh, the truck series payout is not great. So it was probably the wrong series for us when we're trying to rely off racing off the prize money uh, more than anything else. But at the same time, I think we, we timed it wrong. We had a good business plan. We were trying to run uh, in 2014. We were trying to run out of Nashville, Tennessee. And we knew that that was wrong because we spent so much time back and forth to Carolina to try to pick up parts and all this kind of stuff. We knew we had to run it from Carolina. We knew it was going to be with a small team. We had to find the right people. And Kevin Eagle was the crew chief of that team and done a great job. He's a car chief over at Nice now, and he still winds up crew chief in some and did an awesome job. Guys were driving around literally in a dually and a pickup truck all over the entire country. Um, that's how scaled down we did it in 2016. Uh, and still couldn't make it work financially. So we were doing it as cheap as you could possibly do it. I can promise that. Um, and still couldn't make it work out there in the truck series. But we kept it in 2017. We had Austin Wayne Self that came over and drove our trucks. Um, and honestly, Austin's such a great kid. And I think he actually did a really good job. He did better than I did. <laughs> running our trucks the year before. Um, and really going into 2018, we were really excited. We just knew we needed to have a funded driver. Uh, because that spec engine was coming to the truck series. We felt like that was something that was really holding us back big time was our engine program. We had kind of bounced into the top 20 there in 2016 uh, or 2017, kind of at the end of the year, Austin was racing around 17th, 18th, almost every week. 
And we said, man, if we could, we could improve our motor program, we could probably get inside that top 15 and be competitive. And we felt that, and I still feel that, and we just couldn't get the money together. And, and that kind of left us no, no choice but to shut the thing down. Makes sense, makes sense. Well, I'm glad you guys had a good showing at day, get a show for it. Did you do anything to celebrate that, or was it we had to get back to the, back to the shop? Yeah, it was to get back to the shop. <laughs> but <laughs> but the, the night of definitely, definitely felt good. That, that was a good feeling. Sure, for sure. Uh, we got a couple more left, Tommy. Coming in with number four now. What you got for me? Uh, you know, this is tough. Uh, number four would probably have to be from the, the 2016 season um, in the truck series. And it's not going to be a highlight, uh, unfortunately. It's going to be uh, kind of a missed missed opportunity uh, that I see. Um, and it's going to be in Michigan in 2016, uh, which is not one that is going to show up on any of the stat sheets really anywhere. Um, but I believe we finished, hmm. I want to say we finished like 15th, maybe 15th, 16th. We're on the money, 15th. 15th, yeah. And we lined up on that restart. It was so top line dominant that day at Michigan. Hmm. Um and we lined up 12th on the outside lane and we had purchased an ECR engine. So we had basically bought a good engine leading up to this because we had been running kind of old style SB2 Chevrolet engines. We knew we were down on how horsepower real bad. We bought an ECR engine, basically changed our level of speed. We raced inside the top 15 all day. We ran around Ryan Truex, who was in a Hattori truck, and Tyler Young um, really improved our performance dramatically. And uh, I'd never had a top 10. And I just remember the feeling of lining up on the final restart 12th, and I just said, oh, my gosh, I just get a good restart here. I'm in the preferred groove on the outside. Like, I'm going to pick up a couple of spots. They're not going to be able to get around me if I protect the top. Like, I just knew it. And man, I just remember the tension with that. We had a brake rotor that was failing and it sounded like it was coming apart at the seams. If I even touched the brakes and that started happening with about 15, 20 to go. And we had this moment of like, well, if this brake rotor comes apart, it's going to take out the right front. It's going to smoke us in the wall at 180. And that's bad, obviously. And we had, uh, had such a terrible year of things crashing and getting torn up and oh my gosh uh, so many things that that really weren't my fault as a driver just getting caught up in other stuff it was just a terrible bad luck year but we all kind of made the decision like let's go for it we're going for it you know this is it this shot at the top 10 and lining up for the restart felt like i got the restart of my life <laughs> um, rolling into the line and uh, the car in front of me, who I believe was Cody Coughlin, uh, missed a shift. And uh, he missed the third to fourth gear upshift mm-hmm. and stacked me, or second to third gear upshift. It was pretty quick. Stacked me up real bad. I got run into from behind. I believe it was Daniel Hemrick was right behind me and kind of bent out the right rear quarter panel of my truck where it was basically like a parachute and uh i lost some momentum and you know jordan anderson i'm going to say got around me and maybe a couple other guys and i, I couldn't really get back to them like i had lost so much momentum and i think want to say it was like a three or four lap run it wasn't a very long run and that was it and i felt like i just completely wasted this amazing opportunity that we had and of course we were also encouraged with our speed that we had but the rest of the year didn't play out that way we never had that kind of speed again that was kind of our one, one shot that we had with it. Um, and so that was a extremely disappointing feeling that looking back on it now becomes more disappointing uh, knowing um, just how big that could have been for our season that year. Cause we never really had that moment. That was like the big moment for us. Uh, and that would have been, that would have been really crucial. I hear that just for the sake of the listeners, I think most people probably remember this race up front. I think Brett Moffitt made a pass on like the last lap and wanted a real close finish. So that's probably what 
most people remember from that race. But for you guys being in that position, obviously, you know, now it didn't work out. You couldn't get the finish. But how long, I mean, we've talked about how long a good result can stick with you. It sounds like a bad result might still stick with you to this day. Like how long does the pain of something like that when you know what's possible linger? You know, it's not just this race. You know, I picked this one out uh, because I just remember it was kind of the first time that I ever felt like this is my shot. And then I felt like I kind of blew it, you know, and it wasn't really my fault, but it just didn't work out. And unfortunately I've had that shot a lot lately. (laughs) It still, (laughs) it still hasn't, uh, still hasn't worked out for whatever reason. Um, we've had chances this year, like at Charlotte, um, in the Xfinity race earlier this year, running eighth with, uh, you know, three laps to go or whatever and get caught up in a wreck or, uh, you know, like at Pocono, we had, you know, just a, a race that was on a silver platter for us, uh, and get taken out with mechanical issues, uh, where there was, that was a high attrition race and you had a shot at a top 10 or a great finish. And, um, you know, just good grief, uh, <laughs> this past week at Darlington, um, lined up 11th with 20 laps to go and have a, uh, have a right rear tire go flat on you, uh, to kind of take you out. So I've, I've had a lot of these moments, but that was really the first one that I remember being like, this is it. It's going to happen. And we're going to get a top 10 and it, and it didn't, you know, it didn't happen. So, uh, that's just one that I'd kind of circled looking back on. So when you go through a stretch like that, what what is it that kind of keeps you motivated and what is it that keeps you going? Like you're talking about right now, you guys feel like you're on the cusp, but something goes wrong and it, you get the setback when you feel like it's there. When those mount up, what is it that kind of keeps you pushing and keeps you motivated and keeps you feeling like it's out there for you? Well, if you keep putting yourself in that position, eventually you're going to break through and you hear people at the front of the field talking about that winning races, right? Like it took Chase Elliott a long time to win his first race. It's not like he was doing anything wrong. Uh, just didn't work out. And that's how I feel about it with me getting a top 10. I don't know why it's this arbitrary thing. It's not like it's going to change how I view myself as a driver, really, um, or probably how other people see me as a driver. I think I'm pretty well established as a pretty good driver in our series now. Um, but it's something I've just wanted just to, just to say that I've done it, um, because it's always involved overachieving. Right. So like right now in our series, we have 12 cars that are cup affiliated cars basically every week. And a few more might show up like right now, like Kyle Busch is around the 54 this weekend at Richmond. So it'll be 13 cup affiliated level cars. Well, if you finish in the top 10 in one of those cars, how impressive is that? you're only racing 13 cars, (laughs) right? Like I'm not trying to take anything away from those guys that are up there contending and winning races. And there's so much talent up there at the front of our field and all the way through our field in the Xfinity series. Um, But it's almost like class racing, you know, like in sports cars. Um, If you have 13 people in your class and you finish 10th, it's not really that impressive. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I get, it gets spun that way uh, very often where they'll say, you know, oh, you know, he's got 27 top 10s this year. It's like, well, he raced 13 cars. So that's why. <laughs> like, if I was doing that, I think I'd probably handle that too. Um, but with us, getting that top 10 means you probably beat – everybody else in the field in kind of your bracket of money and you beat some other people too, whether through bad luck, attrition, whatever, some strategy, however it happened, you like so overachieved to the point that you basically won the race. You you might as well have won the race. And that's kind of what it represents to me. And so I look at some guys like Timmy Hill and, some of those guys that have been able to go up there and do that, Garrett Smithley, uh, guys that I really respect and I know that are good drivers, Josh Williams, uh, Alex LeBay, guys that, have, they, I don't know, that's just like a feather in their cap. And just for whatever reason, 
I've had several opportunities that just hadn't worked out for me yet. I know I put myself in that spot. I know the other drivers respect me, but it's just something I look at as like this mark of like completely overachieving in your situation. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I mean, we have, this is an extreme example, but I look, you know, we're coming off of the Labor Day race weekend as we record this and you look in the F1 world this week, I mean, uh, Pierre Gasly in a, an Alpha Tari car, which is essentially like, I feel like it's not quite the same as you guys. I feel like the discrepancy might be a little more obviously, well, except for Mercedes, but, but like, you know, that is, I mean, that's a B team to Red Bull at best. And for him to be able to sneak up, he beat the Red Bulls. He held off signs in a McLaren. You know, that, that is, I feel like F1's version of that, where we've just seen this massive breakthrough and it's like, Wow. And I know it's not the yeah. same thing for you guys, but I can see what you're going for there. You know, but when people watch that race, they said, this is such an amazing race. And I think about that with NASCAR and I go, so everybody thought this was amazing that the underdogs were up there contending for a win. Right. Mm-hmm. So what, <laughs> like, why aren't we as an organization trying to like encourage that? Like, what can we do to keep more people on the lead lap? You know, what can we do to minimize the competition gap from the front to the back of the field? Because, like, this is the thing that motorsports fans and NASCAR fans understand the dynamic. And when that gets flipped, it's very exciting because you know, oh, my gosh, Tommy Joe's got a chance to win the race. Like, he normally is trying to run for 12th. You know, or Brandon Brown can could win like that. That is an exciting thing. Um, mm-hmm. However, it plays out. So, like higher tire wear and strategy, and how that can be weird, and that can play to our favor. Um, mm-hmm. All of these things can can work as a way of creating some parity. And I think in the Xfinity series um, right now, in the top three series, I think we have the most parity out of any series. And I think if you asked NASCAR fans which is their favorite to watch. Most of them are seeing our series right now. And I think those two things are related. Makes sense. All right. We're down to the last one. We are ready for number five, not Mambo number five, but do you have a fifth race for me, Tommy Joe? I do. It's uh, Martinsville in 2016 in the truck series, the spring race. So I'm actually telling you a race that I did not race in. Interesting. Um, and that's because I, I crashed in qualifying. Oh. Um, but I crashed in qualifying uh, because the brakes failed on my truck. The problem was that right before the brakes failed, I qualified first in a group qualifying <laughs> effort um, out of like 40 something trucks. So we went from P1 to back in the fence in the span of four seconds. And that is the wildest emotions that I've ever experienced at a racetrack um, where you went from, I mean, in the truck, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know that we're P1. Um, you know, I'm just driving a three lap run and, you know, tell me what we are when I come back in, you know, cause it's a go or go home situation for us. And it turned into that. Uh, I think we ran a 1989, which is still a really good time <laughs> in qualifying at Martinsville. That's like contending for a top five or 10 starting spot at Martinsville every year. If you're down in the, in the, the high 1970s, 80s in the trucks. Um, so it's just kind of cool. Uh, it was a bizarre moment of, I felt like um, we had had the first few races of the year. We tore up a truck at Daytona. Then we went to, I can't remember, we we torn up another truck. Basically in Atlanta. Yeah. Eh, I don't think we tore anything up there. But basically, I knew we tore up a truck 
at Daytona, and that was going to be expensive. And we were going to Atlanta or Martinsville. I want to say it was the third race of the year, maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we were looking forward to going to the short tracks. It was my first time ever going to Martinsville. And we're really fast in practice. And it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, man, we got a pretty fast truck. Like, we could run top 15 here today. And then to go P1 on the board in the first round of qualifying, that was uh, pretty wild. And then to back it in the fence, that was even wilder. And mm-hmm. I still have people to this day come up to me and tell me about that qualifying run. Um, and I had BJ McLeod tell me that the reason that he put me in his car was that qualifying run. Um, Because he said he had raced there in trucks and he had never even gotten close to running that kind of time. And he knew what kind of equipment I was in. And that that was just extremely impressive and proved that I could really get it done. And uh, he kind of gave me that little chance that I got and it turned into an 11th place at Iowa and now the rest is history for me. So it's a race that I didn't even get to compete in. We wound up selling the, the points <laughs> and because we had knocked some people out of the race. And so we had people that bought our number to get into the race. So we actually made money off of it, even though we wrecked. And oh. then went home, got good points from the race because Austin Wayne self bought the points and he finished like 15th. And then uh, wound up creating an opportunity for myself uh, a year down the line that, you know, you would have thought, you know, this was a low point and it wound up being something that somebody saw as a high point. <laughs> so one of the most important laps in your career was in a race you didn't even get to run. Yeah. And a, a qualifying lap that ended with me fencing it. <laughs> That's crazy. So, I mean, it sounds like was the truck just that dialed in and you were just on it that way? Like, where did that lap come from for you guys? Was the truck just that strong? Or Yeah. we. I mean, Kevin um, Kevin was from Virginia, and that was a extremely important race for him and one that he had circled on the calendar. And we had these trucks from GMS, and he just spent an incredible amount of time going over that thing and setting it up. And we were just dialed in. I mean, I remember we were passing red horse trucks in, in practice. Like I got around Ben Kennedy and was like, what's going on? Like, it was almost <laughs> like bizarre. <laughs> I was like, uh, are we, <laughs> how good are we right now? Um, but going into qualifying, you never think you're going to be that good. And uh, the brakes were really soft when I rolled off pit road. But, you know, I've had that before where brakes were soft and they kind of come back. You know, they're just some, they change the pads out or whatever. And you just kind of build up a little heat and the, and the pads will come back to you. And I ran those first couple of laps and was like, Ooh, like, yeah, the pedal was still really soft. It still had a little bit of bite to it, uh, but it was really soft. And then when I fired it in there for the third lap, uh, nothing was there. Um, so it was inexperience on my part for not knowing something was more wrong. Um, but it was also probably that same, you know, stupid, stupid courage <laughs> to try to drive a truck at Martinsville with no brakes on it um, that maybe, maybe led to that lap. That's probably not a lap that, you know, I like to think that I could go back and do that lap. Maybe just the, the, the 28-year-old version of me was a little more brave <laughs> than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So you talked about when you finished 11th at Iowa, you talked about how when you first got out of the car, it was like almost like a shock. Like it took a while for that to set in. Is it something similar like that after an experience like that? I mean, setting a quick time like that and then falling out of the race, but still making money on the points. I mean, that's a lot going on at once. How long did it take for like the full events of that day to kind of set in for you? Yeah. I was just driving home that day with my dad and being like, what what the hell just happened? <laughs> you know, like, what was that? And watching the race and watching Austin with a 44 number on it, which is hilarious because he wound up driving for us the next year. So that's, that's also bizarre. <laughs> uh, and rooting for him. And by the way, his truck was terrible. It had the left front that high off the ground. It looked awful. 
And uh, it was just a high attrition race, and they kept trying to work on it, making it better. He finished 15th, and we walked away going like, holy cow. Um, <laughs> you know, this, this could wind up being a positive day <laughs> for us. <laughs> um, just, just bizarre. Uh, bizarre. I think 15th was the highest finish we had all year with that number. And uh, for it to be uh, uh, Austin tied that <laughs> at Martinsville that day, it's just just so weird um, how everything worked out. So peculiar. When you go back now to Martinsville, uh, is that kind of does that kind of stick with you? Does that memory come to mind every time you're rolling into that little place? Or yeah, definitely. Because um, it was. In a weird way, the reason that I'm probably getting to sit here and talk to you right now, um, it gave me an opportunity with BJ when my team was on the verge of shutting down and I didn't know what my future was going to be. I didn't have sponsorship, really. Um, And it cracked that door open. And then three races later, I kind of jumped through the door and established myself as as somebody that could drive and um, established myself in the garage area as a – as a professional level guy. And that's kind of kept that door open for me at BJ McLeod's team. Even when I was able to get some sponsorship together to run more races, it's what got the door open for me at, at Carl Long's organization at NBM, where I was able to run for them at the end of last year. And it's what's allowed me to, you know, develop um, my career in the sport and establish myself as a NASCAR driver and be able to take that to sponsors and put this deal together again, which is far away the best team I've ever had around me. And it's funny to think that maybe all of that started at Martinsville in a wreck in qualifying, <laughs> um, which at the time I was having just a breakdown crying, thinking that I had put the team out of business and, you know, fast forward five years and, and it's maybe what's got Martins Motorsports in business now. Wow, it's crazy how things come around sometimes. That's a wild story, Tommy Joe. Well, we have one more section to go through. I gave you a little heads up on it, but along with the top five, I like to end this podcast with a thing I just call the top ten. It's ten quick things, kind of a quick hit segment. You can take as long as you want on them, or you can answer them as quick as you want. It's your call. So we will start with number one, and it's sort of a two-parter. It's first race. So first race you can remember watching and first race you can remember running. First race I remember watching was Atlanta in like 1994 or something. Um, it was old style Atlanta where it was the big, uh, the big oval, uh, which by the way, maybe an idea for a repave since that's kind of going around nowadays. We're going to start changing tracks all over the place. Maybe we could use another big mile high bank oval. Just saying. Um, so probably 94 Atlanta, 92 Atlanta, something somewhere in there. It's an Atlanta race. I know that. Uh, my grandmother lived there. And then first race I remember running, uh, go-kart race. Um, when I was really young, I was like four. And uh, I dragged the brakes the entire time, scared to death. Finished dead last. <laughs> Sounds like something I would do. Uh, number two, worst race. You might have already touched on it, but – What's one you feel like was one of the worst ones either you experienced or you drove? Either one. Oh, this is easy. It was Texas. And uh, you need to find a clip of this. This is Texas in 2017. Um, our truck team was running with Austin Wayne Self. I had the bright idea to run a second truck at Texas because um, I hadn't Gotten to drive one of our trucks, uh, except at the very beginning part of the year. And uh, we wrecked in practice where we uh, obviously didn't have time to set it up properly. So I went down in the first corner and just barreled it into the wall. So totaled it. And then uh, we kind of committed to running the race. We had a pit crew lined up, all this stuff lined up, sponsors, everything. I worked out a deal with Mike Harmon. Uh, where he was going to let me drive his truck and throw the throw the number on it. Cool. And uh, Mike thinks that I overdrove the truck, which is hilarious because I was running like 
no offense here, I was running at the back of the field uh, behind Jennifer Jo Cobb, so I don't think I was overdriving it, um, and had something break in the middle of one and two, and shot me straight into the wall on the outside wall. So I totaled two trucks in one afternoon, and uh, basically had to pay for both of them. Thanks a lot for that, Mike. Uh, and I hit the outside wall and then all the way back down and hit the inside wall. And actually the inside wall hurt worse. And even though it looks like I'm going a lot slower, uh, just seeing it coming the whole time and basically going off the top of a three-story building straight down into an inside wall, it was not, not great. So that absolutely is the worst weekend I've ever had in racing ever and probably the most expensive. Ouch. Two for one. Not the kind you want. Uh, number three, let's flip it on its head and say best race. Best race that I've ever run in my life where I felt like I did everything perfect um, from driving inside the car. I mean, I guess I got to say Iowa. You know, I guess I got to say Iowa 20, 2017, 2017. Yeah. Iowa 2017 for BJ. Uh, finished at 11th. That's probably still the best race um gosh i would maybe say charlotte earlier this year i felt like that was a really good race i basically came from the back of the field multiple times red tire go down early get back on lead lap ton of speed put herself in position top 10 with under 10 to go got wrecked uh it's one of the better races that i probably run in nascar but obviously didn't work out uh, number four, favorite series growing up? Cup. Cup. Were there any favorites outside of Cup? Or anything I, outside I of NASCAR? I didn't watch the trucks or Xfinity very much. I really didn't. Or Bush. Okay. Sorry. I played a lot of NASCAR racing uh, 2000 or NASCAR racing 2 or whatever it was. I played a lot of that and I played the Bush <laughs> series. Um, but I'm not going to sit here and act like I was a, a Bush series expert. I mean, I know um, Randy LaJoy and that Purina car, and uh, Jeff Green, and which is so funny. I get to race against Jeff, and he's such a good guy. Uh, I've gotten to meet all these people and kind of be a part of their lives. So it's so weird, uh, surreal. <laughs> you know, you think back as like a little kid playing a video game, and now you're part of it. Uh, but, yeah, it was cut. It was always cut. That's always all I want all right, number five, favorite driver growing up? Kyle Petty. Kyle Petty, interesting. Number six, least favorite driver growing up? Don't have to answer if you don't want to. Uh, I, don't, I never was a big Rusty Wallace guy. I, really? I, don't, I don't know why. I didn't like Rusty, which is hilarious. Like He actually seems like a really cool guy. I don't know why I didn't like him. <laughs> it was, maybe he was a Miller Light car or something. Uh, yeah, but Rusty, I guess. Rusty, okay. Number seven, what all racing tours do you watch now, if any? Ooh, uh, Formula One. I watch a lot of Formula One. Uh, I'm a, like, season pass holder of the Formula One thing. Um, that's kind of the main other series that I watch. I watch all the NASCAR stuff, obviously, Cup, Trucks, what we're doing. Um, I used to watch a lot of ARCA, and I don't really anymore – um, late models when I get a chance if it's a big race or something I might get on Speed 51 and check that out but uh, primarily Formula 1 is kind of what I've been watching I saw my Pierre Gasly reference at home earlier thank goodness yeah <laughs> I watched that live perfect number 8 close your eyes think about this in the sport what is like your dream job or moment what would be that one thing you would love to achieve mm -hmm. Uh, getting to race in the Daytona 500. Okay. Uh, that would be that would be the peak. What I know is that it's going to take somebody having to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So um, I will say option B would be uh, making the playoffs in the Xfinity Series. Okay. It's a fair take. Number nine, one person or group that you would recommend to follow or watch in the industry. Can't be you or me. person to follow like on twitter like on social media just in general it can be on social it can be on the track it's whatever whatever mm. it's your fancy hmm. 
It's interesting. I, I love Jeff. I love Jeff Glock. I love Jeff as a reporter. He's just a really good guy. I think he provides great commentary for this stuff. Like he does a great job of like giving you um, a little bit of context as to wh- why something is great or something sucks. <laughs> hey, whether NASCAR likes that or not, um, I think Jeff has always been really honest and quick with his opinions and, and really well informed and uh, such a good writer and uh, was so supportive of me when I was writing and being so forthcoming in my blogs and stuff that I did in 2016. So I'd say Jeff, and then probably from the from a driver standpoint, Bob Pockris is great too. I mean, those are like the two to me. No offense, Aaron, you do a great <laughs> job. But but Bob and Jeff are like the absolute have to must follow. Period. Like that's <laughs> if you're on NASCAR Twitter and you're not following Bob and Jeff, I don't know what you're doing. Um, and then as far as a driver, ooh, um. God, then I really, because I'm thinking about this and I'm going, okay, it's, I want it to be somebody that I've raced against that I think has a great personality and is an overachiever and also has like potential to like maybe be a really big deal, right? And unfortunately, that last part has a lot more to do with other factors. Uh, but like Josh Williams is a guy that I have a ton of respect for and if we could just put a microphone in front of this guy every week, he would be the most popular driver in all of NASCAR. I don't know what we're doing. I mean, this guy is the craziest sucker I've ever met in my life. And, and just wildly funny. Um, we need to... <laughs> We need to make this a thing where he he gets interviewed after these great runs because he will give you a soundbite. He he is like everybody talked about uh, Spencer Gallagher. Like oh man, Spencer's so funny. That's Josh, only just way more redneck and <laughs> like absolutely outperforming his equipment week in and week out. Like I just saw the the loop data from Darlington. Um, his average running position was like. 14th in the race. That is just badass. Uh, my average running position was 17th. So it kind of gives you an idea, right? And it's like, whatever, it's just really impressive. So I mean, those guys, but man, I just have so much respect for so many people in the midfield of what we do. So it's tough for me to pick out one, but if I had to, it'd probably be Josh. J-Dub, one of the first people I would always go to when I first started, because I started covering Arcus. So he was one of the best for a soundbite in the ARCA world back then. Incredible. <laughs> for sure. Number 10, last one. Hopefully this is the easiest one for you. One opportunity to plug your stuff. So any social media or things you want to plug, any sponsors you want to thank, the floor is yours. Yeah. Uh, at Tommy Joe Martins uh, on Twitter and Instagram. And at Martins Motorsports on Instagram and at Team Martins on Twitter. Uh, where you can keep up with us over the course of the season. And obviously wouldn't be here talking to you, wouldn't be doing anything with Martins Motorsports if it wasn't for our sponsors and AAN Adjusters, Gilroy Farms, Red Angus, Skyview, and Market Rebellion, Diamond Gusset, and just all the people that we have had to help us uh, over the course of your Simpson Race products and what they do for me. And uh, just so many people have a hand in it. Uh, I get to go be the face of this. <laughs> And, and talk to you and, and do stuff like this. But um, the crew working behind the scenes, they're the ones that are, that are really living it every day. And they have done just a phenomenal job of embracing um, my name as something that they take a lot of pride in, as being a part of Martin's Motorsports and, and uh, wanting to make us a competitive team. So thank you to everybody that's, uh, that's made it possible. Right, and thank you for hopping on this podcast, Tommy Joe. I appreciate it. Yeah. Folks, Tommy Joe Martin's top five. 
And what'd you guys think of that one? I thought it was interesting, some of the races he put in. Like, who would have thought I would have a driver mention a DNQ as one of the top five most important races for their lives? That is just crazy. But such was the story for Tommy Joe Martins, and I thought it was really interesting. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks, of course, to Tommy Joe for taking the time to go through with this. Uh, it was recorded late in the 2020 season, but not at the very end. So I also appreciate his patience while I was getting all my resources together to do this the right way and get it launched. I hope this worked out for his favor and I hope you guys enjoyed it. I would like to, of course, thank a couple of our wonderful Patreon supporters at Motorsports Beat. Now today, I'd like to thank Mary Zorro and Pat Richardson, two of our associate level sponsors two of the longest supporters I've had and people I appreciate greatly for their faith in me and what I'm trying to build. Thanks to the wonderful Brad Perez for allowing me to utilize his song for the intro and outro. And thanks, of course, to all you wonderful listeners for allowing Tommy Joe Martins to share a few of the races, moments, and memories that have meant the most to his career. Next up on the Motorsports Beat Podcast, we will take you to a rookie in the Cup Series. Something notice to me. Uh, I didn't talk to him when he was going to be a rookie in the Cup Series, but things have changed quickly for him, and that is Anthony Alfredo, somebody who's young and upcoming in the sport with some interesting memories and races chosen that I think you guys will really like. But until then, this has been the Motorsports Beat Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Beard from 93. And I'll catch you guys again when you get back on the beat. See ya.